Last year, uh, when I was being questioned on the floor of Presbytery regarding the doctrine of limited atonement and the extent of God's grace through Jesus Christ and Him crucified, this one pastor stood up and he said, uh, hey, it sounds, like, um, it sounds like you're saying all dogs go to heaven. And I remember I just looked at him and I I didn't know what to say. So when my little sister sent me these pictures, which were going around on the internet, I found them really fascinating. 
Supposedly, what you're about to see are church signs of two churches on opposite sides of some street somewhere in the south, okay? This is Our Lady of Martyrs Catholic Church, and the sign reads, all dogs go to heaven. On the other side of the street, Beulah Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Only humans go to heaven, read the Bible. On the other side of the street, Our Lady of Martyrs Catholic Church, God loves all his creations, dogs included. Other side of the street, dogs don't have souls. This is not open for debate. Other side of the street, Catholic dogs go to heaven, Presbyterian dogs can talk to their pastor. (laughs) Other side of the street, Converting to Catholicism does not magically grant your dog a soul. Catholic side of the street, free dog souls with conversion. (laughs) Presbyterian side of the street, dogs are animals. There aren't any rocks in heaven either. Catholic side of the street, all rocks go to heaven. Well, I did a little research and discovered the photos are probably not actual church signs, but trust me, it is an actual church debate. And it reflects an actual tension between two poles of the Christian church. And now I'm, I'm hurting for words here, and so for lack of better words, I'm gonna use two very imprecise words uh, in relation to religion, not other things, okay? So please don't make too much of this, but the Our Lady of Martyrs Catholic Church sounds to me like a classic liberal Christian church. And the Beulah Cumberland Presbyterian Church sounds like a classic, very conservative Christian church. Liberal churches really like the idea that God is all about peace and love. So of course, all dogs go to heaven. They like verses like Psalm 36, six, listen to this. You save people and animals alike, O Lord. And they deal with verses that they don't like by saying stuff like this. Well, you know, the Bible is an old book, antiquated, and we can't take it all literally. For liberals, God tends to be a huge concept, you know, like goodness or truth or love or mercy. For liberals, God is usually very large, which is pretty cool. For wherever you are, there God is also. For liberals, God is like everywhere and everything, which really is a lot like saying God is nowhere and nothing, which is then like saying good, goodness, truth, mercy, love are nowhere and nothing, or at least we don't really know what they are. You see, how do we know what God is if we don't know what God is not? How do we know what the good is, for instance, if we don't know what the good is not? If we don't have the knowledge of good and evil? That's something to chew on, huh, Eve? But if God is everywhere and everything, 
He seems like nowhere and nothing to us. And yet God did say to Moses, tell them, I am that I am sent you. My name is Yahweh, the existing one. Like he's saying, I am isness. <laughs> I is. Yahweh, he is the ground of all being, and scripture is pretty clear, he's everywhere that's anywhere. So you see, liberals aren't just boneheads like you were thinking. Conservative Christians love the idea that God is all about righteousness and truth. They like verses like Revelation 22. Outside the city, that would be the valley of Gehenna, are the dogs sorcerers and sexually immoral. Conservatives deal with verses that they don't like by saying things like this. Well, clearly the author didn't intend to mean what he seems to mean, what he says. Conservatives like to think they have God all figured out. God is spirit, so God saves souls. Dogs don't have souls, so they won't go to heaven. Now, most conservatives uh, may not agree with that particular formulation of doctrine. However, they would be pretty convinced of some other particular formulation of doctrine. For conservatives, God really isn't everywhere and everything. He's somewhere and something. Like this where and this thing. Like the law and the covenant in the holy of holies. Like Jesus in Israel from zero to 33 or 30 AD. The Jesus we learn about in books and Western Civ and put on our t-shirts. It's pretty cool because then we know just who God is and where he is. It's pretty tempting because we think we can keep them in our box. And so this is a, a gross oversimplification, but it seems to me that for liberals, God's pretty big, but they don't know who or what he, she, or it is. For conservatives, well, they know who he is, but they keep him pretty small and in a box, like some kind of pagan tribal deity the God of the Americans or the Jews or some particular box. But what about people that have never seen that box? What about the pygmies in grass huts over in Africa that have never heard? What about all those people born before Easter in 30 AD? What about the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the people of the Lamb whom Israel is to, quote, devote to destruction, Korban. Does God care for them? Love them? Is he, is he big enough for them? You know, I think liberals are tempted to be pantheists. God is everywhere and everything which is like nothing. And conservatives are tempted to be like pagans. God is right here and our thing which is very small, local, tribal sort of thing, our thing, Jesus. Listen to John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. One way, 
one narrow door. So you see, those conservatives really aren't the boneheads that you thought. And please make no mistake about me. I'm convinced Jesus is the way, the door, the only way. So, So what about those people that haven't heard? Like Abraham from 2000 BC, is he forever burning in hell, Gehenna, because he didn't hear? Does that old dog go to heaven? Listen to Jesus in John chapter eight. Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. You guys are trying to kill me. (laughs) That's not what Abraham did. He acts like he knew the guy, right? 2,000 years later. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not like 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then they try to kill him. Because I am is the big name for God. Jesus is like a particular name. Small as your average manger. But you know, we need God to be big so that wherever we go, I am is. And we need God to be small so that we could know him and learn to trust his heart. Well, Genesis 14, you know, we've been going through Genesis and uh, looking at the story of Abraham as of late. Kedor Laomer, I don't know how to say that, maybe Cheddar Manager or something like that, Cheddar Laomer, King of Elam and four other kings of the east in Genesis chapter four, make war on the four kings of the valley of Siddim, which is the valley where you find the Dead Sea. They make war and defeat the four kings, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in verse 10, we read this. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, that's tar. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's right. Abraham saved Sodom and Gomorrah. Did you know that? Next verse. After Abraham, or Abram, returned from the defeat, the slaughter of Chedormanger, Chedorlomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of 
Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Now, from the evidence of Scripture and the record of the Jewish historian Josephus, it seems pretty clear that this is the valley of Shaveh. I was there and took this picture. Uh, the valley to the left over, over on that side is the Kidron Valley. Um, along about Passover time in Israel, it would just turn red and become a river of lamb's blood. The valley on the right, below that enclosed field, which is the potter's field, is the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, which most English Bibles translate as hell. So that guy in the corner there is walking toward hell and may not even know it. The flat spot where these two valleys meet is most likely called the Valley of the Plain, the Valley of Shaveh. So get the picture. Because the people that would receive Genesis and read Genesis back in Israel would have this picture. Abram has just returned from the slaughter of the kings, the slaughter of the kings. That's what it actually says in the Hebrew. In the Old Testament, God, you know, commands war, but he hates violence. He tells David, for instance, that he can't build God's house because he's shed so much blood. And Abraham, Abram has just shed a whole lot of blood. And no matter the reason, slaughtering people must be thoroughly traumatic. But slaughtering hundreds, maybe thousands, in order to save a group like Sodom and Gomorrah, not the most reputable crowd, I mean, that must really mess with your mind, you know, and your heart. So Abram is returning from the slaughter of the kings with blood on his hands 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, and he meets the king of Sodom at the edge of hell. You ever been there? Is God big enough to handle a place like that? Is he small enough that you could know his heart and believe? Even there in a place like that? I, I took this picture from uh, the location of the southern wall of the ancient city of Salem. In Sumerian, Uru Salem, what we call Jerusalem, city of peace. Verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the edge of hell. And Melchizedek, the name means king of righteousness. King of righteousness. He sounds conservative, doesn't he? King of righteousness. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, that is, king of peace, now he sounds like kind of a liberal, you know? And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, that wasn't normal. It sounds like some kind of ritualistic, sacramental kind of covenant thing. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. This is the first time in all of Scripture that the word priest is used. And this is the only place that God Most High, El Elyon, is used in all of Scripture, and that's because El Elyon is a Canaanite word. 
El Elyon was the top of the Canaanite pantheon of gods. The name is found on ancient clay tablets from 1500 BC. You see, this Melchizedek guy is not a Jew. He's a Canaanite, probably a Jebusite, uh, ancestor to the people of the land that Moses and the Israelites were to devote to destruction like sacred offerings to the Lord, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, El Elyon possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, El Elyon, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He tithed to him. C.S. Lewis writes this. If you are a Christian, you are free to think that all these religions, even the queerest ones, he's writing in the 50s, okay, contain at least some hint of the truth. When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the questions that matter to them most. When I became a Christian, I was able to take a more liberal view. You know, the Gospel of John states that the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. That light is Jesus, just Jesus, yet he enlightens every man, every one. That's what John says. Lewis continues, but of course, being a Christian does mean thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. As in arithmetic, there is only one right answer to a sum, and all other answers are wrong. But some of the wrong answers are much nearer being right than others. They're not entirely wrong. As we'll see, the king of Salem was pretty wrong, though. Or the king of Sodom, I'm sorry. The king of Sodom is pretty off. However, Melchizedek, king of Salem, appears to not only be partly right, but spot on. Now, this is wild. Psalms and Hebrews refers to Jesus as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This guy, Hebrews 7, listen to this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So some people argue that Melchizedek is actually Jesus. But we know that he was at least a picture of Jesus. And he offered Abram the good news, the gospel of Jesus in 2000 BC. Isn't that amazing? You know, Jesus descended from the Jerusalem above, King of Righteousness and Prince of Peace. He came out of the city and was crucified on a cross for our sins. God is righteous and must judge our sins. 
And God is king of peace and chooses to forgive our sins. Psalm 85, righteousness and peace have kissed. Jesus came out of the city, was crucified on the tree where righteousness and peace kissed each other. He offers us his body and his blood. He offers bread and wine. He offers us grace. 2000 BC, Abraham receives grace. And he offers his worship to God through Melchizedek, the high priest. Then verse 21, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, Yahweh, El Elyon. That's an incredible statement. Possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and their share of the men who, who and the share of the men who went with me. All, all of Melchizedek's dealings with Abram were blessings of grace and therefore worship of God most high. The king of Sodom wants business deals with Abram, contracts and IOUs, and Abram wants no part of it. So get the picture. With blood on his hands, outside the city, at the edge of hell, the king of righteousness and king of peace gives Abram communion of bread and wine, and Abram then chooses the good and rejects the bad. This is all 2,000 years before Jesus said to the Pharisees, Abraham saw my day and was glad. The author of Hebrews goes on to point out that the new covenant is the eternal covenant. So the grace of God in Christ Jesus predates and supersedes the law Indeed, Paul argues that it truly is the foundation of all things. He writes, this is the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, Ephesians 1.10. And through him to reconcile to himself all things making peace by the blood of his cross, Colossians 1.19. John tells us he is the lamb that was crucified, slaughtered from the foundation of the world. And so Jesus said to those Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. See, Jesus isn't simply a a piece in Abraham's story or Israel's story. But through Abraham, God chooses to tell his story, Jesus' story. Through Abraham, I am chooses to become small that he might be known to all the families of the earth. God who is large chose to be small that he might be larger still. God who is large chose to bless Abram who is small that he might bless all the families of the earth. That's what it says, that's huge. This very particularity 
is the sacrament of universality, wrote the theologian J.S. Whale. God who is large chose to be small as a, a baby in a manger that he might fill all things with himself and in such a way that we would forever know just who himself is. I am, is, love and light. He's the way, the truth, the life, the word that creates and sustains all things. I think that means he is like everything that is not nothing. And he is like everywhere that is not nowhere. Everything that is not darkness, lies, and corruption. He is truth, not lies. Light, not darkness. Love, not apathy. Pathos, not apathos. Good, not bad. Substance, not absence. I am, but never I am not. That's just kind of too hard and too big to hang on to, isn't it? But the ground of all being became small as a manger and weak as a dead man on a cross that we might know him, receive him, body broken, blood shed, that he might fill us and fill all things. I am Yahweh is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so you see, I think a biblical Christian is way more liberal than most liberals. And I think a biblical Christian is way more conservative than most conservatives. A biblical Christian believes that Jesus is the only way, and yet the only way is in the process of filling all things. And so all dogs may very well go to heaven, but they only go by the blood of Jesus. Liberals are tempted to turn God into whatever they want. But through Jesus Christ and him crucified, God has chosen to make himself known. Conservatives are then tempted to keep Jesus in their own little box, but Jesus always breaks out and we should stop trying to put him back in. You know, when Jesus was crucified, the separating the Holy of Holies from this world, it was ripped from the top to the bottom and God's righteousness got out. The Prince of Peace descended, Ephesians 4, 9, into the depths of the earth and ascended that he might fill all things. What, what I'm trying to say is this, that there is no place that Jesus is not. Yet there are many places where people don't know his name. So you can go any place with courage and every place with his name. I heard Tony Campolo tell a story about Billy Graham, a story that Billy Graham was kind of scared to share publicly because it would get him in trouble. Years ago in China, on the way up this particular mountain, 
uh, to preach the gospel to these monks that have asked them to visit. On his way up the mountain, as he was walking up the mountain, he noticed this one monk over on the side uh, chanting, praying, very devoted in what he was doing. And he said, I just felt like I needed to go over there and share the gospel with this, this fellow. And so he got his translator. He went over and stood beside this uh, monk, and then he opened up his Bible, the, the New Testament, and he began to tell him the story of Jesus through this translator. And as he was talking to this monk, he noticed that there were just tears streaming down this monk's uh, face, down his cheeks. And when he finished, the monk said this, you, you're giving me this book? How can I thank you? I've never had a gift like this. You see, sir, this Jesus that you described to me, I've always known him. And even as you were reading from this book, within me he was saying, he's speaking of me, he's speaking of me, he's speaking of me. And when you said the name Jesus, he said to me, that's my name, that's my name, that's my name. I've always known him. And now I know just what he did for me and who he is. I know his name. Tuesday, I had coffee with an old friend, a member of our church from years past, Tim Jones. He recently returned from a mission trip to Burma. He was ministering to the Karen people who are close by to Sarat and Paul Bradley in Cambodia. For hundreds of years, the Karen tribe has uh, resisted the Buddhism of the Burmese. And that's because their ancestors had told them of the creator god, Yawah, and how the original man and woman were tempted by evil to eat forbidden fruit, and how they fell and were subject to evil spirits, and how one day, according to the prophecy, white brothers would come with a book which contained the words of Yawah and reveal how they could walk with Yawah once again. Turns out several tribes in Southeast Asia had legends just like that or similar to that. Uh, legends like that, when the missionaries arrived in boats in the 19th century, and not just Southeast Asia, all over the world. You see, God is building altars to the unknown God, just like in Acts chapter 17. This is one of my favorite books. It's called Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. It's just full of uh, stories like that. But you see, God in Christ Jesus is at work all around you, even where people don't know his name. In other cultures, even Canaanite culture, 4,000 years ago, even this culture. You know, modern science is making discoveries about space and time, light and meaning that just scream Jesus. It's Jesus, it's Jesus. Hollywood is making movies that just scream Jesus. The, the plot is Jesus. Now, I'm not saying they do that on purpose. They can't help it because he is the meaning. He is the plot. All around you, God is preparing people for the gospel of Jesus. And you see, I hope you're liberal enough to look everywhere for his hand. And I hope you're conservative enough to tell everyone the one you're looking for is Jesus. All around you, he's preparing people to receive his blessing. 
He's calling you to come out from behind the city walls to offer that blessing of bread and wine, his grace, so that the people in the valley would know him and stop making deals with the king of Sodom and the prince of darkness and lies, and bondage to lies. He's working in other cultures. He's working in this culture. And you know, every person in this world is another culture, another world, another manger into which Jesus is fixing to be born. And so I pray that you'd be liberal enough to look in every manger and conservative enough to see Jesus. My friend Sarah said that I could share this, right? <laughs> Sarah wrote this poem. I think it's incredible. Don't have time to share all of it, but, but at least part of it, okay? It goes like this. If it's easier for you to get sex on the street than a hug in church, I want you to know that I see God in you. Cars speed past, cardboard signs being held by stick people with long, dirty nails. I light my cigarette and pass it on. I have no funds to share, and my offering is a lit cigarette, and God accepts it, takes a puff. God bends over the toilet, releasing the contents of her stomach from the fifth time today. And I don't know what to do. So my offering is to hold her hair and wash her face and mouth afterwards, and she thanks me for not judging her. God just witnessed someone shoot at his house in the dead of the night, and he comes out of the house in his PJs adorned with heavy artillery. I live across the street, and instead of staying inside and ducking under furniture, I rush out to help him, and my offering is trying to take him out of revenge. You see, I never tell people to shut up because I see God in their sufferings. I have seen God shoot up and held them as he came down. I've seen God run away from an abusive partner. I've held God as she told me about being gang raped at a frat party. God ain't screaming out for offerings of millions in money, but of time and community. And then she quotes scripture. And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. Well, I had the incredible privilege of baptizing Sarah a few months ago. And that means that the king of righteousness and the king of peace lives in her. And that means that she is part of a royal priesthood, according to 1 Peter. And I do believe that priesthood is of the order of Melchizedek, for she has the faith, hope, and love to walk out to the edge of hell and offer Jesus. But now, you can't offer Jesus unless you've received Jesus. And I don't know where you are tonight. Maybe you have blood on your hands and you just are desperate for peace. Maybe you're stuck in a deal a bondage with the king of Sodom. And you just 
want to feel clean. You want righteousness. Maybe you feel like you've got one foot in hell and, and you long for the eternal city. Well, pay attention. Because the king of righteousness and the king of peace has left his home to bring you a blessing in the spot where a river of lamb's blood flows into the valley of Hinnom. And so on the night that the king of righteousness and the king of peace was betrayed and delivered up, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you, children of Abraham. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant, the eternal covenant, the blood of the covenant, my blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me. And so if you want the blessing of the king of righteousness and the king of peace, if you want to go into the city, you see, he is the way, he is the door, and he comes to you and he calls you in. All you have to do is surrender what you have and follow. So if you would, pray with me. And then we invite you to come to the table and receive his blessing in faith. And so, Lord Jesus, we surrender our lives to you. Just say this in your heart after me. You just say, uh, Lord Jesus, I confess to you, I'm a sinner. And Lord Jesus, I want you to be my righteousness. I want you to be my peace. I want to go home to your city, the city of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. We invite you to come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cups. The light cups are juice. The dark cups are wine. All right? And as you do, uh, worship. Amen. So God is so big that he is everywhere working. And God is so small that you know him. And I hope you see that changes things. Um, I used to be so scared to talk to people about Jesus that I would meet on the street. Like it was all up to me and uh, I was going into some foreign land. But I think Jesus has said to me, he's shown me, Peter, <laughs> I made them, I fashioned them, 
I know every cell in their body. I have been romancing them since the day they were born. And now it's a gift to you that I might call you to this place that at the right moment, you could tell them my name. That's what God calls you to. So that you can walk even into the valley of Hinnom uh, with bread and wine and bless the people that are there. Tell them his name. And as we go down to the park and we have the church picnic and you meet people, uh, remember that. Jesus is working and he calls you along to tell him his name. You know him. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel and speak the gospel without fear and in hope. Amen.